It was just a few days until Christmas, and Tom had looked long and hard for a gift for Sarah. Finally, he thought he had found it. Of all places, he discovered it up in the attic. He didn't quite know what it was, but it was pretty, and he thought it would look nice on the mantel above the fireplace. It looked like it was made out of brass, but it was only a few inches high and definitely needed some polishing. He took it, put it in his pocket, and snuck downstairs. Later that evening, as Sarah was wrapping presents in the other room, he quietly polished it until it glistened. Picking out some special wrapping paper, he too wrapped his gift, added a small bow to it with a card, and wrote on the card Sarah's name. He placed it under the tree, ready for Christmas morning. Christmas morning came, and they exchanged their gifts. Sarah was always happy to receive presents at Christmas, and this one she particularly liked, saying things like, beautiful and just the thing. But then she had said that about most gifts she'd received that morning. Finally, after some time had passed and she had enthused over Tom's gift for a few moments, she paused and asked, but what is it? Prepared for this question, Tom replied, I thought you might ask that. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's part of some old ornament or pipe or tool or something. But I think it would look pretty nice up on the mantel. But, but what is it, Tom? Again, Tom paused, slightly irritated. It's a thingamabob, he said quickly. Let's just call it a thingamabob. As she looked at it and sounded the words out silently on her lips, she hesitated and then said with a smile, okay, it's a thingamabob. We'll put it right over here. Sliding her hand along the mantle and knocking aside some of the Christmas cards they'd received, Sarah placed the thingamabob right in the middle. Thus, a Christmas tradition had been born. What Sarah really wanted for Christmas that year was at least several hundred dollars more than the thingamabob had cost, and several hundred dollars beyond what Tom's slender salary would allow. A number of years ago, Sarah's parents had given her a beautiful grandfather clock, actually built by her grandfather. It was tall, a bit rustic, but beautifully carved and polished. Sarah always remembered it. It had been in her grandfather's house at the top of the stairs, like it was guarding them, regularly ticking and talking the time and chiming every quarter hour. She listened to it, stared at it, watched her grandfather wind it, played by it and with it, and one time, much to her grandfather's alarm, made it into a dollhouse. In short, she loved the clock. And what she really wanted for Christmas this year was for that clock to work. You see, it hadn't worked since it had been moved from her grandfather's house several years before. A number of family members and friends had looked at it, but could never quite figure out how to solve the problem of the broken clock. And so a few months before, Tom had phoned a few places that worked on grandfather clocks. He described the clock and the problem. Both places assured him that they could almost certainly make the clock work, but both also told him that the cost would certainly be several hundred dollars which, again, was several hundred dollars more than Tom and Sarah could afford. And so the clock stood there in their home silently. A few years later, the most amazing thing happened with Sarah's clock. Andy, a friend of Tom's from work, was at their home, helping them to set up some Christmas decorations in time for friends to come over for that evening. And as he had every time before, when they had come into their house, Andy spent a few moments looking at the grandfather clock, opening the door, pulling at this, 
pushing at that and just shaking his head. Tom, you really could get it to work. I'm sure you could. And Tom replies, I, I'm sure I could too. I'm just not sure I can afford it. It was right after that this exchange occurred that Tom bent down and took the thingamabob from its box. Since the first year he'd given it to Sarah, Tom had arranged to have it professionally cleaned every year since. They had come to like it more and more. It was something that somehow seemed to fit, though they didn't really understand what it was. When people would ask them about it, they could do no more than look at each other, smile, and say in unison, it's a thingamabob. One time, the wife of one of Tom's friends even offered to buy it from them so that she could use it in her decorations. It had become part of all of the Christmas celebration and pageantry. As Tom began to put the thingamabob on the mantle, Andy stared at it and asked him what it was. Just a thingamabob, Tom replied. Where did you get it? Andy asked, feeling the object. Tom told him the story of finding it in the attic one Christmas a few years back when they were particularly hard up, of polishing it and of giving it to Sarah and its subsequent life as a thingamabob on their mantle every December. Andy stood looking at it for a moment, and then he said, Do you mind if I try something with this? It might scratch it up a bit. Tom looked at him strangely. Well, no. Go ahead. Help me lay the clock down on its side first, said Andy. About an hour later, there was no more thingamabob on the mantle. The thingamabob was back where it belonged, and Sarah's grandfather clock was finally working again, thanks to the thingamabob. For many people, the celebration of Christmas that we have in our culture is a bit like that thingamabob, found in the attic of family tradition, having some beauty about it, and over the years acquiring a certain amount of sentimental attachment. Not so useful, but appreciated. I think this is probably because Jesus is like that for many people. Born a little baby amid hushed silence and a manger, some place with camels and wise men and shepherds, angelic promises of peace and a mysterious star in the sky. Somewhere along the line, for many of us, we've begun celebrating Christmas more culturally than we have scripturally. We seem to delight more in the exchanging of gifts and joy in singing of the mythological Santa Claus coming to town than we do delighting in the incarnation of the Son of God. Consequently, many of us have placed Jesus somewhere on the periphery of our lives, not only of the holiday, but of every season, rather than where he belongs, which is at the center. During our, our time together this morning, I want to exhort you on this Christmas day not to celebrate Christmas, but to celebrate the King of Christmas. We're going to be in Matthew 1, 18 through 25 as we do this together and consider the incarnation and what our response to it ought to be. Let's pray and we'll get into the text together this morning. Heavenly Father, the anticipation of Advent has arrived with Christmas Day. Advent is over. Christmas is here. A light has dawned on a people that were walking in darkness. Let us rejoice with untethered, irresponsible, childlike joy. For Jesus is the answer to all of our fears. 
He is the reason for all of our hopes and happiness. Father, let us give him praise this morning. This we pray in his name. Amen. Let's look at verse 18 of chapter 1 and consider the situation into which Jesus Christ is born. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So, so what's going on here is you have a guy who's met a girl and her, her, she, she has a way of making his heart go pitter-patter. He, he decides that she's the one. She's the one he's going to marry and spend his life with and they get engaged or betrothed to use the Bible's word. And in biblical times, betrothal was a little bit more serious than our uh, contemporary engagement period is. Uh, betrothal uh, involved legal documents and witnesses. And so when you went to get a, uh, if you wanted to separate before getting married, it, it was a divorce legally. And so Joseph finds out that, that Mary is pregnant, and instead of shaming her publicly and just running to just tell everybody how awful she is and just blatantly divorcing her, he decides that he's going to take a uh, more um, righteous and caring and loving route. He, he's going to just divorce her quietly. He's not going to make a, a big deal out of it, since clearly uh, she, she's pregnant before they've even come together in a sexual union, right? And, and so uh, as he seeks to do this, um, he's going to be confronted in a dream. But, but we can relate to Joseph a little bit, right? You can imagine being in love with somebody. You've got some of those old cliche songs in your head, like, go into the chapel and we're gonna get married you've set out all the place cards you've done the seating chart you've picked the venue you've even had people check off whether they want chicken or fish at the reception you've got your songs everything is ready to go for this big wedding and all of a sudden one day you sit down with your soon-to-be spouse and they say we need to talk and then you say, I'm sure, whatever it is, that we can work it out. What a great season of life this is. And then uh, uh, your soon-to-be spouse, your fiancé says to you, we well, say, I've been, I've been faithful to you completely, pure. But there's this issue, this thing. I, I am pregnant by God, by God, with God's child. And you can imagine being, being in Joseph's position, or if you were in a position like that today, what your response might be. Like, ha, ha. Okay, very funny. But you can imagine a stale tension overwhelming the room as laughter would fade in the face of sincerity. I mean, we can understand why Joseph didn't believe this initially, right? If, you're with, if you were with somebody and they said, hey, I'm pregnant by God and carrying God's son, you are not likely to believe them. And I would argue if you are, you're probably a fool. This is an unusual event. It's supernatural. And the scandal of it would have been just so shocking, especially in ancient times. So Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. I imagine him that night as he decides to divorce uh, Mary quietly, him kind of tossing and turning on his bed until eventually uh, sleep, sleep takes him. You know, you've had that experience where you just can't even keep your eyes open any longer. 
And it's in this sleep that Joseph has a dream, and an angel introduces him to the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of Christmas. And incarnation is a, a fancy word uh, that theologians use. I, I've t- taught it to you before. I've said you can think of it as incarnitas if you're into Mexican food. Carnitas is kind of meat, but that, that's all it means is in the flesh. It's, it's God in the flesh. It's the incarnation of God the Son, God becoming a man. And so this is how the angel introduces Joseph to the incarnation. Verse 20 After Joseph had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant. And give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Joseph can believe Mary now. God is revealing to him the truth that what is in Mary is what was promised from before. The child that is in Mary's womb now is the child of the genealogy that we considered a few weeks ago together. This is the one who will be the son of David, the son of Abraham that brings blessing to the nations. The one who is worthy of the title Christ or Messiah. He's the one who will bring peace on earth and God into relationship with men. Matthew's whole gospel is centered on the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. And he is showing us how God has moved heaven so that it might break into earth. I mean, you can even imagine the angel speaking to Joseph in this dream. Don't don't you know the prophecy, Joseph? Spoken by Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that virgin is to be your wife. Blessed is she among women. Joseph, the fullness of time has come. The king whose kingdom lasts forever, the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, has come. The light of the world is now hidden inside the womb of your betrothed. Don't be afraid to marry her. I mean, take a moment, friends, to, to ponder the staggering truth of the incarnation. God the creator and sustainer of all things, becomes a helpless baby who requires diaper changes and depends on a nursing mother for nutrition. The God of the universe enters into our sinful world and into our suffering so that he might die for our sin in order to save us from it. I mean, it's astounding. And it's one of the, what we've said are the two supreme miracles of Christianity. Resurrection and the incarnation. I mean, the, the incarnation is it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It is mind-bending and boggling. It's incredible. God is born. The unmade becomes made. The invisible becomes visible. The creator becomes part of his creation. The transcendent becomes eminent. The one who made man becomes the son of men. To die for men. This heart-stopping truth is amazing. It's taught throughout Scripture. 
explicitly so in numerous places in the New Testament. John 1 says of Jesus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created. Life was in Him, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. The Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt, took up residence among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2.6 says of this Jesus, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1, 15-20 says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, this is a statement of priority, not of origin, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him bodily, and through Him to reconcile to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I mean, Hebrews is, is underpinned by this theme of Jesus' superiority. Throughout, we're told that Jesus is better than the angel, that he provides a better hope, that he provides a better covenant, provides better promises, a better sacrifice, a better possession, a better inheritance, a better land, a better resurrection, a better blood testimony. The point of Hebrews, the point of the Bible is to show us that Jesus Christ is supreme and he is supremely valuable. He's worthy of worship and it's this supreme one. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, that's fully God and fully man. One person with two natures. And so it will be forevermore. It is this one that is worthy of our worship and our praise and our attention. This is the God who who stepped down out of heaven into our world. I mean, that, that, that should break your mind a little bit. I mean, we've seen kings be born into palaces with great pageantry and celebration. But this is is not what we expect from God. 
We would expect him to announce his coming in the temple with, with great bursts of light and fanfare. But that's not what happens. His birth is announced to shepherds. He's born among the poor. He has no place to lay his head but a manger. This is God flipping our expectations on their head. Jesus comes into the family that he's come for. Jesus has come for the poor and for the weak and for the marginalized. He's come for those who are willing to say, we cannot get to God on our own. We need a Savior. I mean, that's the the message of Christmas, is that men and women by their own good works cannot save themselves. But we need a hero to come into our story and to rescue us. That is what Jesus has done. Friends, Christmas Day, the birth of Christ, is all about Easter weekend. Jesus becomes a man ultimately to live a perfect life in man's place and to die for the sins of all who will trust in him. Christmas and Easter are tethered together. The incarnation and the resurrection are two sides of the same coin and they cannot make sense apart from one another. God became a man so that he might save us. That's verse 21, right? She will give birth to a son. And you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The message of Christmas and of Christianity is that human salvation must be the work of God himself. Christmas means that that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. It's astounding. Only God can save us from the wrath and the punishment that our sins deserve. Our wickedness has earned suffering and death. But God has said, I'm going to enter into your suffering. And I am going to take the wrath that you deserve, the punishment you deserve on myself, so that by faith in me, you might have peace with God. That's how Jesus brings peace. Friends, Christmas is not a sentimental way of viewing life. It's a realistic way of looking at life. It's not saying, cheer up, if we all pull together, uh, we can make the world a better place. It says that we need a Savior to come and change our hearts, to help us, to to make us, to be born again. And not only us, but, but all of the world. When He returns, it says to us, a child has been born. The Savior King has come. The everlasting King in the line of David will bring upon the nations the blessing of Abraham. Blessing of Abraham is relationship with God. The inheritance of all of his possessions. If If we misplace the virgin birth of Jesus outside of our celebration of Christmas or outside of our Christianity, then we've misunderstood both. The incarnation and the virgin birth are supernatural and foundational to the gospel. If, if we are to deny either, we are to deny Christ himself. Therefore, if anyone affirms the virgin birth as impossible, that they are confessing their own unbelief. I mean, if you think about it, though, like if God created everything, 
A virgin birth is, is not that big of a deal for him, <laughs> right? He, he can do it. I mean, the whole point of Christmas is to announce God has come to save us. In uh, 1961, uh, the Russians put the first man into space. Some of you remember that. I'm not going to say who. But the Russian premier famously said that, that when the cosmonaut went up into space, he discovered no God there. And in response, C.S. Lewis wrote a quite famous article in which he said that if there is a God who created us, we cannot relate to him or discover him by just simply going up into the air. God would not relate to human beings the way a man on the second floor of a building relates to a man on the first floor of a building. He would relate to us more uh, the way an author relates to characters in a book, the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. See, see Shakespeare's the creator of Hamlet's world and of Hamlet himself. So Hamlet can only know about Shakespeare if the author reveals information about himself in the play. So too, likewise, the only way to know God is if God reveals himself to us. And that's what he's done in Christmas. God has done more, though, than simply reveal information about himself. He has written himself into our story. Christmas is about Jesus coming and rescuing us and showing us that the story of the world isn't, isn't about you. It's not about me, but about Jesus and his rescue of us. Christ is born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger so that he might die in Jerusalem on a cross. And he came to save us. That, that's the point. When you think of Christmas, I, I hope that it's not of mistletoe and, and holly, whatever holly is, I'm not really sure, but, but that Jesus came to save us, that a light has dawned in darkness. I mean, that should be the, a chorus of incredulous, just unbelief in your heart. That it's so unbelievable that God entered time and space to rescue you. He came to save us. It is this message of Christmas that demands a response of faith in this one who came to save us or of rejection. Look at verse 24. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Despite his fears, despite the ridicule he would receive from his peers, Joseph responds to the message of Christmas with belief and obedience. He believes the unbelievable, and he takes Mary as his wife. Friends, belief in God's promise and obedience to God's word often means difficulty. Will you, like Joseph, believe in the king of Christmas? When Jesus, the Savior King, has come to reign forever and to bring blessing to all who trust in his promises. He is the great hero who enters into our stories to save us when we turn from our sins and place our trust in him. He, he is the light of the world that has come to end all darkness. And, and his death was about ending evil without ending us. And he's going to return one day to put an end to all evil. And it's only those who have sheltered themselves beneath his blood 
that will enjoy his perfect peace, who will enjoy those tidings of comfort and joy. Those outside of his saving blood, those outside of the faith, are still lost in darkness, still doing evil that deserves judgment. And so they will not taste the sweetness of the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but instead the sword of judgment. It is urgent that we believe this message and that we take it to those who are lost and dying so that they too might know the goodness of God. That we don't have a God who stands on a mountain and says, come to me, do really good things and come to me. Work really hard. You can clean yourself up. No, we have a God who comes down the mountain and becomes like us. Have a God that comes to us and puts his arm around us and says, I am yours if you will only draw near to me. What will you do with Christmas? I pray that we would not forget the king of Christmas and relegate him to the background of our celebration in favor of Santa and reindeer and gifts and sentimentality. Let us remember that Jesus is the cornerstone of our celebration. Let us not turn Jesus into a thingamabob that sits on a shelf. Set him at the center of the season, at the center of your life. Don't celebrate cultural Christmas. Celebrate the king of Christmas. Celebrate him with songs of Christmas, robust theological songs. I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing because in it, it, it shows us the truth of the incarnation. Here's the whole gospel. Let me read it to you in closing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. Why? Because God and sinners can be reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Long desired. Behold Him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh. This line is so great. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God is with us. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Have you received the second birth? Have you been born again? Will you believe in the King of Christmas? Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King. The past, present, and future King who reigns forever on the throne of David and brings blessing 
to all those who will bend the knee and confess him as Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are poor and needy, yet you have taken thought of us. You've spoken to us in your word and through your Son, Jesus, who stepped out of heaven and and took on flesh so that he might communicate the length and depth and width of your love to us by dying for us and resurrecting for us and for your glory. God, your incarnation is incomprehensibly mysterious and beautiful. Uh, It is akin to but greater than a man becoming a worm. This love, this miracle of the incarnation snaps the breath from our lungs. It stills us in our place and lets us know that you are God. The more we think about it, the more staggering it gets. Father, we thank you that nothing in all of fiction is so fantastic as the truth of what you've done in Christ. Lord Jesus, how merciful and great you must be that you would leave all that is rightfully yours in heaven. That you would leave the perfect community of the Holy Trinity in order to bring men and women like us into perfect community with yourself. You are brilliant. Your goodness dazzles and awakens. Your generosity drops our jaws. You give to us beyond measure. And your presence is a storm that thrills us and a whisper that comforts us. Father, let us feel the storm and hear the whisper. Let us experience you as we celebrate you together this morning, this Christmas day. And it is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we ask these things. Amen.